We are continuing our series going through the Minor Prophets, and today we are going to study arguably the most famous of the Minor Prophets as we turn to the book of Jonah. And I want to begin by asking you, what comes to mind when you think about Jonah? I'm pretty sure when most of us think about the book of Jonah, what comes to mind is Jonah and the great fish, or Jonah and the whale. And we tend to give the great fish a lot of attention, and understandably so. Jonah being swallowed by a great fish in order to preserve his life was indeed an extraordinary and memorable event. But while the event involving the great fish was extraordinary, the book of Jonah doesn't spend much time talking about it. The great fish is mentioned in a grand total of three verses, which leaves us with the question, what is the book of Jonah really about? What was taking place at the time of Jonah? What did God call Jonah to do? How did Jonah respond? What do the attitude and actions of Jonah teach us about ourselves? Most importantly, what do we learn about God through his words and actions? How does it all point to Christ? I hope this sermon this morning will help us to answer those questions and consequently help us to grow as followers of Jesus. We are first introduced to Jonah in 2 Kings chapter 14, verses 23 through 25. And here's what we read. In the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria. And he reigned 41 years. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. He restored the border of Israel from Lebo Hamath as far as the Sea of the Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Gath. So in this passage, we read that Jeroboam II had become king in Israel. And during this sermon series, Sam has provided a little bit of the historical backdrop of what was taking place during the time of the Minor Prophets, and I just want to review that for a moment. So the people of Israel, God's people, desired a king. And God eventually gave them a king. He gave them King Saul. That did not work out so well, so then he was replaced by David. David was uh, followed by his son Solomon. But then after the reign of Solomon, the nation of Israel divided into two kingdoms. The northern kingdom, which retained the name Israel, and the southern kingdom of Judah. And what we read is that the kings of the, respected, of the respective kingdoms most often did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. The kings failed to lead God's people into covenant faithfulness. They failed to lead them in true worship of the one true and living God. And we see this with Jeroboam II. Jeroboam II was the 13th king after Solomon. So after the people of Israel divided into two kingdoms in 930 BC, 13 kings later, Jeroboam II became king of the northern kingdom of Israel. And one of the things we see in this passage is that even though Jeroboam II did evil in the eyes of the Lord, he had success in recovering some of the land that had been taken from Israel by Syria. We see that he restored the border of Israel from Lebo Hamath, 
as far as the Sea of the Arabah. And what had taken place was uh, Assyria had come and attacked Syria, leaving a power vacuum in the area, enabling uh, Israel to regain some of its land and reestablish some of its borders to better provide a defense for the people of Israel against their enemies. But did you notice that the success of Jeroboam II in taking back land came through the word of the Lord spoken through Jonah? In reference to this passage, Eric Redmond writes this, It was through Jonah's preaching that Jeroboam II fixed Israel's border that had been weakened during earlier conflicts with Assyria. This kept Israel from being blotted out as a people. This work kept Israel from being blotted out as a people. So you can imagine how Jonah felt about this. Jonah, as God's prophet, was used by God to strengthen his people to do the work of regaining land, reestablishing their borders in order to protect them against their enemies. This must have been exceedingly rewarding work for Jonah. He must have been grateful that God used him to this end. But what happened in the book of Jonah was a different story. Before we get there, before we jump into the book of Jonah, one thing I think needs to be addressed regarding Jonah is that uh, many people regard the book of Jonah to be a myth or an allegory or perhaps a parable. In other words, many people do not regard the book of Jonah to be recounting actual events that took place in history. The reason that many people do not regard the book of Jonah to be recording historical events is because of the extraordinary nature of the events within the book. But how you understand the account of Jonah being swallowed by a great fish or the other events that are recorded in Jonah begin with the presuppositions that you bring to the table. So if you do not believe in God, if you do not believe in the supernatural, if you do not believe in miraculous events, then it follows that you will not regard the book of Jonah to be recounting historical events. But if there is a God, if God is indeed the creator of everyone and everything, then it should not be difficult for us to understand and believe that God could do as he wills and he could use a fish to swallow a man in order to preserve his life. If God is who he says he is, then what we read in the book of Jonah would not be difficult for him at all. So how we understand the book of Jonah be, begins with the presuppositions that we, begin, that we bring to the table. If you are a follower of Jesus, there is one compelling reason you should consider the events of Jonah to be historical events. The reason that you should consider them to be historical events if you are a follower of Jesus is that Jesus considered them to be events that took place in history. We see this, for example, in Matthew chapter 12. In Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 through 42, we read, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the fish. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. 
for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. So Jesus referred to Jonah as a historical figure, and he referred to the events that took place in the book of Jonah as historical events. If they were not, then what he said in this passage would not be very compelling. And here's what I mean by this. In reference to this passage, Pastor Kevin DeYoung said, did an imaginary preacher preach to an imaginary city and imaginary people repented who will actually rise up from judgment to judge the actual hearers of Jesus' day? And he wanted to point out, like, that would be like me telling all of you, you had better repent of your sins. Because if you don't, the men of Gondor will rise at the final judgment to condemn you. You probably wouldn't be scared if I said that. You would think I was strange. You'd think I was nerding out on Lord of the Rings. But it would not be an effective way to call you to repentance. So Jesus, when he spoke about the Nedivites, spoke about them and their repentance as an actual event. And he said they will rise up in the judgment to condemn the hearers of Jesus' day who failed to repent when they heard Jesus preach because the people of Nineveh repented when they heard Jonah preach. And Jesus is, of course, much greater than Jonah. So as followers of Jesus, we should understand the book of Jonah to be a true story that serves the purpose of teaching us important things. So with that in mind, let's jump in to the book of Jonah. We're going to go by this piece by piece, and we'll start by going through chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for the evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. In the beginning of Jonah, we read that the word of the Lord came to Jonah, This was probably not a surprise to him as we have already seen that he was a prophet who served the Lord. God used him to to proclaim his message, to do his work, to do his will. So when the word of the Lord came to Jonah, it was probably not a great surprise to him. But this time it was different. Instead of God telling him to serve his people, he called him to go to his enemies. God told Jonah, you need to go to your enemies, the people of Assyria. And the people of Israel recognized and understood that the the people of Assyria were wicked. They were evil. And the way they treated their enemies was ruthless. They committed all kinds of violent deeds. They were notorious for being evil, wicked, and violent. And so when the Lord told Jonah to go to the people of Nineveh, he did not welcome the task the Lord gave him. He did not want to go to the place the Lord commanded him, And he did not want to warn the people that God had commanded him to warn. Whereas God previously used Jonah for the good of his people, the people of Israel, now God was calling him to go to his enemies. However, instead of going to Nineveh, Jonah fled in the opposite direction. Nineveh would be due northeast. 
east of where Jonah was, and he decided to head west. And he wanted to get on a ship that was heading west. He was trying to go to the most western part of the known world. Jonah did not even debate with the Lord. He completely and utterly rebelled against the Lord's command. He ran the other way. He thought he could flee the presence of the Lord. We're not told Jonah's specific reason for rebelling against God's command in chapter 1, but his reason will be exposed in chapter 4. But there was a root problem underneath his reason. You see, when God gave Jonah a command, and Jonah thought it better to run rather than obey, he fundamentally failed to believe that God is good and all of his commands are good. He failed to believe what the psalmist wrote in Psalm 119, verse 68, where we read, you are good and do good. Jonah did not need to understand why the Lord was sending him to Nineveh, but he did need to trust that the Lord is good and all of his commands are good. And the same is true for us. We need to know this. We need to believe this. See, when we fail to obey God, we are failing to believe that his commands are good. We see this from the beginning. In the Garden of Eden, when God gave Adam and Eve a specific command not to eat fruit of a specific tree, and they decided that what God had commanded them was not actually best for them. They believed that disobeying God would actually be better for them than walking in obedience to the Lord. And this is true for us. When God commands us regarding something, we fail to obey his command, we are believing that his com- we're failing to believe that his command is good. God teaches us in his word that sexual immorality is a sin. All sexual immorality is a sin, whether it's with another person, looking at pornography, or even just entertaining a lustful thought. And so when we engage in sexual immorality, that which God has commanded us not to, we are believing that by doing so, it will be better for us. It will be more fulfilling. It will be more satisfying. It will bring us more pleasure than walking in obedience to him. God commands us to be generous. When we fail to be generous, when we we are reluctant to be generous, we are believing that somehow money or material possessions will bring us greater happiness or, or joy or satisfaction or pleasure than walking in obedience to the Lord. God teaches us that drunkenness is a sin. And so when we engage in drunkenness, we are believing that somehow getting drunk will make us more happy, more satisfied, more whole, more fulfilled than walking in obedience to the Lord. He teaches us not to complain and grumble, but rather to give thanks in all circumstances. So when we complain and grumble, we are somehow believing that complaining will be better for us than walking in obedience to the Lord. When we sin, when we disobey God's commands, we are failing to believe that God is good and that all of his commands are good and good for us. Jonah failed to believe that God and all of his commands are good and therefore thought it better to flee God's presence rather than obey God's commands. Let's keep reading, verses 4 through 16. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, And there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship, and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. 
Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they, saw, they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell to Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? And where do you come from? What is your country? And what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. And they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And he said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. In these verses we see Jonah come under God's judgment for his disobedience. Jonah's efforts to flee the presence of the Lord proved to be utterly futile. Where could he possibly go? Where could he possibly go to escape the presence of the Lord? The answer, of course, is nowhere. Jonah learned firsthand what the psalmist declared in Psalm 139, verses 7 through 10, where we read, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. Jonah could not flee the presence of the Lord, and he could not escape the storm of God's judgment. Jonah and the sailors with him on that boat experienced the sovereignty of God in a profound way. They experienced firsthand that the Lord is sovereign over everyone and everything, including all of nature. God can use nature to accomplish his will and his purposes. Unfortunately for the sailors, with Jonah, they got caught in the storm and they feared for their lives. But neither their efforts nor their gods could save them despite their best efforts. No matter how hard they worked, they could not prevent the Lord from doing what he desired to do. And no matter how many gods they cried out to, none of those gods would answer. None of those gods could save them. We see the futility of man, man's efforts, and we see the futility of polytheism, worshiping many gods. Why? Because there is one true and living God who is sovereign over everyone and everything, and he accomplishes all of his good purposes. No one can stand in his way. So they woke Jonah and decided to cast lots to determine who was to blame for this disastrous storm. And once again, God's sovereignty was on display as the lot fell to Jonah. Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. When the lot fell to Jonah, they started grilling him with questions. Who are you? Where are you from? What do you do? Why is this happening? Jonah responded to their questions by revealing, I am a Hebrew. And I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. It's interesting so, the, though, that Jonah says, I, I fear the Lord. That confession, I fear the Lord, seems a little bit hollow in light of the fact that he was rebelling against the Lord. 
See, if you fear the Lord, you would obey him. The men were exceedingly afraid, and rightly so. So they asked Jonah what they needed to do in order to bring an end to the storm. And Jonah's response was just, throw me into the water, let me die. It might seem altruistic on the outset, but did you notice there was no repentance in his response? It wasn't, you know what, I I need to repent and obey the Lord. It was, just throw me off and kill me. They did not like that option. They did not like the idea of throwing a man overboard in light of the fact that it was the one true living God who was causing the storm in the first place. They continued to try to make it to shore. What's interesting here is that these men had more compassion than Jonah. They wanted to do whatever they could to try to save his life. Finally, they realized they had no choice, but before throwing Jonah overboard, they prayed to the Lord. They acknowledged his sovereignty. They said, you are the one who do as you please. Please do not hold uh, this sin against us. Please do not hold us accountable for his death. They acknowledged his sovereignty. They, they demonstrated true fear of the Lord. And when the sailors threw Jonah into the sea, the storm ceased, immediately leaving no doubt who was responsible for the storm. And we see that the, the sailors worshipped the Lord. They recognized that he is the one true and living God. They feared him and they worshipped him. In this part of chapter 1, we see the sovereignty of God on full display. And we also see a contrast between Jonah and the pagan sailors in these verses. Who was the one who was more compassionate? Who was more compassionate, Jonah or the sailors? Who truly feared the Lord, Jonah or the sailors? Jonah, who was of, this, of the people of God, is put into contrast with these pagan sailors, and they are the ones who are shown to, to fear the Lord and to be more compassionate and merciful than he. So the sailors were saved by the one true and living God, but what became of Jonah? Let's read verse, verses, uh, chapter 1, verse 17, through chapter 2, verse 10. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I was... I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. God, in his mercy, did not give Jonah what he deserved. Jonah blatantly rebelled against the command of the Lord, though he knew what he was supposed to do, It was an act of rebellion, treason, complete and utter disobedience. Jonah deserved to die. The Lord did not allow him to sink to his death. 
Once again, the Lord exercised his sovereign rule over everyone and everything by appointing a fish to swallow Jonah and preserve his life. In this part of the book, Jonah recounts for us his prayer from the belly of the fish. And in this prayer, he also recounts his prayer while he was sinking in the ocean before he was swallowed by the fish. He described how he cried out to the Lord in his distress from the belly of Sheol. He was saying, I was in the throes of death. Death was starting to encompass me. My life was fading. But then the Lord delivered him. Using powerful imagery, he described how he was on the cusp of death when he prayed, and the Lord answered. Just as he thought death had its grips on him, he said, you brought my life up from the pit, O Lord my God. And what a beautiful description of our salvation. The Lord delivers us from death. He delivers us from the pit of destruction. When we are completely and utterly unable to save ourselves, it's the Lord who delivers us. Then Jonah said what the sailors had learned firsthand. He said, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake the hope of steadfast love. Friends, we can only know and experience steadfast love in God through Jesus Christ. And when we pay regard to vain idols as the sailors did or vain idols that creep up into our hearts when we chase after things that we think will fulfill us and satisfy us rather than pursuing the Lord knowing he is the only one who can truly satisfy us, we forsake our hope of steadfast fast love when we chase after the things of the world rather than pursuing and worshiping the one true living god we forsake steadfast love in contrast to those who would pay regard to vain idols jonah resolved to give thanks and offer sacrifices to the lord alone at the end of his prayer he declared emphatically salvation belongs to the lord no other god is able to save And no one is able to save him or herself. Salvation belongs to the Lord. We might say that Jonah's salvation from the fish in the water came through unconventional means. The Lord spoke. The fish got a little queasy. And Jonah ended up back on land. As Sam pointed out to me this week, there there was one of two ways that Jonah could come out of that fish. The Lord granted him the more merciful way. God graciously saved his life. Even though he was guilty of rebelling against God's command, he experienced God's mercy. There's hope for us. There's hope for sinners such as us who have disobeyed God's command. And why is that? Because God is merciful. Let's read Jonah chapter 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. 
By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. The beginning of chapter 3 is almost identical to the beginning of chapter 1. In the beginning of chapter 1, God called and commissioned Jonah to deliver his message to the people of Nineveh. Here again in chapter 3, we see God call and commission Jonah to deliver his message to the people of Nineveh. And what this shows us is that God was willing to give Jonah a second chance. In spite of his blatant disobedience and rebellion, God gave Jonah a second chance. Brothers and sisters, I hope you are encouraged by this. Once again, we see God is merciful. God is gracious to sinners such as us. He forgives us and does not give us what we deserve. Jonah's task was to proclaim the Lord's message to the people of Nineveh. He was sent to call out against the city the message that the Lord gave him. So Jonah went to Nineveh and proclaimed God's message. He warned the people of Nineveh that judgment was coming. He said, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That is the sum total of the prophetic oracles in the book of Jonah. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Not exactly a message brimming with hope. Part of me wonders if Jonah told the whole message, if there were some parts he maybe conveniently left out, or at least maybe some parts that were a little bit more muted. Yet Nineveh, or yet 40 days, and Nineveh will be destroyed, unless you repent and believe in God. That's how I imagine Jonah doing it, a little bit reluctantly, perhaps. Yet, when Jonah proclaimed God's message, something extraordinary happened. The people of Nineveh believed God. They responded to the message by humbling themselves and repenting of their sin. And the response of repentance was widespread from the least to the greatest. The message of God's judgment even reached the ears of the king. And what was his response? His response was to humble himself. He removed his royal robe and put on sackcloth and ashes, a, a visible demonstration of humility. He humbled himself and called out to God. Do you see the power that accompanied the proclamation of God's message? An entire city was brought to repentance through the preaching of God's message, even though the message was delivered by a sinful man, a reluctant prophet. We need to understand that God's power continues to accompany the proclamation of his message. In Romans 1.16, the apostle Paul wrote, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. There is power in the proclamation of God's message. We refer to that as the gospel, which is the good news that God is saving sinners such as you and me, that God is saving disobedient rebels such as you and me, and he is doing so by providing Jesus Christ as a savior. Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and he did so by living a perfectly righteous life, by dying upon the cross as a substitute and sacrifice, and by conquering death through his resurrection. Jesus came into the world to live a perfectly righteous life for us. He came to die on the cross in our place, and he came to conquer 
uh, death for us as well. So now everyone who repents of their sins and believes in Jesus will be saved. This is the gospel. And when the gospel is proclaimed, people are brought to repentance and faith. We see that salvation comes through the hearing of the gospel. What kind of response does God look for when his message is proclaimed? He looks for the response we are given a picture of here in Jonah 3, repentance and faith. True repentance involves godly sorrow for our sin. It involves being grieved that we have sinned against God, not grieved that we have merely been caught. Godly sorrow, we have sinned against the Lord, and it involves a turning away from sin and a turning to God. We are grieved by our sin, and we turn away from sin. We turn toward God in faith. We call out to him. We see the people of Nineveh. We see godly sorrow, true humility, and calling out to God. So what did God do when the Ninevites believed the message and repented? We see in verse 10 that he relented from the disaster that he said he would do to them. One question that might come to mind when we read that God relented is, did God change his mind? In order to understand God's actions here with the Ninevites when he relented, we need to understand the role of prophetic pronouncements of judgment. Jonah's message was a prophetic pronouncement of judgment. What's God's purpose in that? Where we're given insight into God's purpose with a prophetic pronouncement of judgment in Jeremiah chapter 18, verses 7 through 8. We read, If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. At least in some cases, God uses prophetic pronouncements of judgment to bring about repentance, to cause people to turn away from doing evil. And this is exactly what took place here in Jonah chapter 3. It's not that God changed his mind. It's that he used this prophetic pronouncement of judgment to bring about repentance. This was another gracious and merciful act of God. We need to see that when Jesus warns us of the coming judgment, this also is a gracious and merciful act on his behalf. Jesus spoke often during his ministry on earth of the judgment that is to come. This was not him being harsh or mean-spirited. This was him being gracious and merciful, giving us the opportunity to repent that we might be reconciled to God, that we might know his steadfast love. God is gracious to warn us about judgment that is coming. Let's turn to chapter 4 to see how Jonah responded to Nineveh's repentance and God's mercy. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster, Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. The Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. 
When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it to grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, the great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? Jonah's prophetic pronouncement of judgment led to the repentance of the Ninevites, and this displeased Jonah. Jonah was angry that they repented. I think we could rightly conclude that he did not have the heart of a missionary. This was not the outcome he wanted. Jonah did not get what he wanted, and therefore he was angry. But that's not all. He went on to pray, and in his prayer, he found fault with God. And it was as if he was justifying his previous disobedience. He was saying, Lord, this is what I said. This is why I fled, because I knew that you are slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, merciful, all this kind of stuff. I knew that you would relent from disaster. This is why I went. Justifying his disobedience, angry because the Lord did not do what he wanted him to do. He knew this would happen because he understood God's character and nature. He knew that God was a gracious God, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster. Brothers and sisters, we need to see the absurdity of this. Jonah was angry with God because God was acting in a way that was consistent with his character and nature. Jonah didn't just have a problem with what God had done. He had a problem with who God is. Because of God's character and nature, Jonah would not get the outcome he wanted. And therefore, he was angry. Now, there is such a thing as righteous anger. This was not it. Most of our anger is not righteous anger. There might be instances where we know and experience righteous anger when we are angry because of harm that maybe comes or an injustice that's done to another person maybe a vulnerable child uh, or something like that we might become angry at that and that is righteous anger but most of our anger centers on ourselves and that anger is not righteous anger and god's question to jonah was do you do well to be angry love the way the lord uses questions in a penetrating way he uses questions not to learn or gain new information, but to reveal and expose. We saw this in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve sinned against the Lord. And because of their shame, they tried to hide from him. And what did the Lord say? Where are you? Did he not know where they were? Of course he knew where they were. But he asked the question, where are you to expose their shame because of their sinful disobedience? To expose the fact that they were trying to run from God. And here in our passage, the Lord used the question to expose the sinfulness of Jonah's anger. His anger was rooted in not getting what he wanted and what he wanted was not good in the eyes of the Lord. 
And I think this is a good diagnostic question for us. When we become angry, do we think, do I do well to be angry? Does the Lord think it's good for me to be angry right now? And we can use this not just for anger. If I'm being impatient, do I do well to be impatient right now? Do I do well to withhold forgiveness? Do I do well to complain and grumble? Is this good in the eyes of the Lord? This is a good diagnostic question for us when we are angry, especially when we're angry because we're not getting what we want. Not only do we see Jonah's unrighteous anger, we also see his hypocrisy. Do you see the magnitude of Jonah's hypocrisy here? He professed joy and gratitude when the Lord was merciful to him and saved him from the judgment he deserved, but he was angry when the Lord was merciful to the Ninevites and saved them from the judgment they deserved. He was grateful to receive it, but angry when someone else received it. How do you respond to Jonah's hypocrisy? Does Jonah's hypocrisy make you shake your head at Jonah? Or does his hypocrisy cause you to pause to consider your own hypocrisy? As followers of Jesus, who profess that we believe in him, we believe he is who he says he is, we believe his teaching, do we live in a way that is contrary to Jesus, to his teaching, to the example that he has provided for us? You see, it's easy for us to shake our heads and wag our fingers at Jonah, but I think we would do well to regard this as a cautionary tale for us regarding our own hypocrisy. His hypocrisy, hypocrisy is absurd. But we need to understand it's always easier to see it in someone else than in our own, in our own lives. It's always easier to point it out in someone else than to see it in ourselves. In verse 5, we see that Jonah was still holding out hope. He wasn't a quitter. He was still holding out hope that God would rain fire on Nineveh. He watched from a safe distance to see if they would experience the judgment of God. He held out hope. But as he waited, the Lord used an object lesson to bring to light his hypocrisy. As Jonah waited to see what would come of Nineveh, he endured the scorching heat of the Middle East. But God miraculously provided a big shade providing plant overnight. Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. He was thankful for this wonderful gift the Lord had given him, though he did not deserve it. But just as quickly as the Lord provided the plant, he destroyed the plant. And so the heat was so intense that Jonah asked if he could just die. So the Lord asked again, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And Jonah felt so justified in his sin that he said, yes, as a matter of fact, I do. I do do well to be angry about the plant. This is the power of sin to deceive us. We justify ourselves in our sin. I mean, it's crazy that Jonah said that, isn't it? Yes, I do well, Lord, to do angry, to be angry. 
But we too can be easily deceived by our sin and seek to justify ourselves. We need to guard against this. We need to ask the Lord to help us to see our sin and our hypocrisy so that we will humble ourselves and repent rather than justify ourselves and remain in our sin. We need the Lord's help to open our eyes to our own sin and hypocrisy. In the final two verses, the Lord teaches Jonah the most important lesson found in the book. He said, you, Jonah, have pity for this plant. This plant that you did nothing to bring about, you didn't even take care of it. Did you even water it once? And now it's gone, and you pity this plant. Should I not pity the people of Nineveh? Should I not be merciful to them? And I love the little line that he adds at the end, like there's 120,000 people, and there's cows. You care about a plant, can you at least have pity for some cows? He exposes the hypocrisy of Jonah. But he also revealed that he is merciful. Should I not pity the people of Nineveh, even though the people of Nineveh were sinful people and enemies of Israel, the Lord took pity. He is merciful. In the book of Jonah, we see God's sovereignty. We see God's sovereignty on full display. He is sovereign over everyone and everything. He is sovereign over nature. He is able to use nature to accomplish all of his purposes. He's sovereign over the, the animals. He's able to use a great fish to swallow a man in order to preserve his life. He is sovereign over the nations. He is able to bring an entire city of wicked sinners to repentance. He is sovereign over everyone and everything, and we should see this in the book of Jonah and worship him as the one true living God who is sovereign. We should recognize that he does all that he pleases. He accomplishes all of his purposes. No one can stand in his way. We also see God's compassion and mercy. God was merciful to Jonah. He was merciful to the pagan sailors. He was merciful to the people of Nineveh. We see clearly in this passage God's compassion and mercy. Jonah did not always see this as good news, but we certainly should. In Romans chapter 5, verses 6 and 11, we read, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. God saved us, not because we're good people, not because we got our acts together, not because we pulled ourselves up by our bootstraps. God saved us in spite of the fact that we are sinners who have rebelled against him. He saved us while we were his enemies. He showed us mercy by sending his own son to die for 
his enemies. We are the recipients of God's extraordinary grace, of his mercy, of his loving kindness, of his steadfast love. It is good news that God shows pity to his enemies because we were once his enemies. In the passage that Sam read from earlier, we see that we too are called to love our enemies. We're called to love our enemies because God loved us while we were his enemies. By loving our enemies, we become like our father. He is unkind to the grateful and wicked. We are called to be merciful because our father is merciful. So brothers and sisters, as those who have received God's mercy, as those who have received God's love, even while we were sinners, even while we were his enemies, as those who have been reconciled to God through his grace, we are called to love others. We are called to love our enemies because God loved us when we were his enemies and because he is merciful to the ungrateful and wicked. The book of Jonah is a wonderful and powerful book revealing much about our character and nature revealing much about the character and nature of God. The book of Jonah points forward to Christ in many ways, and we see that Christ was willing to die for his enemies. Jonah wanted to die because God wouldn't judge his enemies, but Jesus came to die for his enemies. So in light of this, let's be people who receive this love. So we walk in repentance and faith, We receive the steadfast love of God and we seek to love others as he has commanded us, even our enemies. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the book of Jonah. We thank you that you teach us so much through this story. You reveal so much. We thank you that you are a merciful God, rich in love, slow to anger, We are the recipients of your steadfast love. We thank you for this, Lord. We pray you would help us to love others, even our enemies, as you have loved us. We thank you for this, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.